Welcome. Welcome to all. My name is Dan Palazzolo. I'm co-director of the Marshall Center, which is housed at the Jepson School of Leadership Studies at the University of Richmond. And we are funded uh, by a very nice, generous gift from the Thomas W. Smith Foundation. And today's lecture is brought to you in part by the Marshall Center, but also by the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. And so on behalf of Dean Sandra Peart, I'd like to welcome you to the campus on such a beautiful day. I would recommend that we go outside. But unfortunately, we have to videotape the whole thing, so we'll just stay inside. Um, the way things are going to work today is where they normally do. It's a little bit different. Um, our speaker will talk for about 40 minutes or so, and you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. And then afterward, we have a wonderful reception in the lobby, and we also have a book signing. So uh, it's going to be a great day. And to start things off, I want to introduce um, Dr. Thad Williamson, who will introduce our speaker. Dr. Williamson is an associate professor of leadership studies and of philosophy, politics, economics, and law at the University of Richmond. Uh, he's a scholar, he's a teacher of leadership, and he's actually a practitioner of leadership. He's been involved in uh, city politics here in a number of offices, and has recently decided to put his hat in the ring and is currently running uh, for a, a city council seat in the 5th District of Richmond, so he's a very busy person, but he's taking time today to introduce our speaker. Thad? Uh, good afternoon. It's great to be here. Um, I'm pleased to introduce our speaker on behalf of the, the Jefferson School of Leadership Studies. So Raymond Arsenault is the John Hope Franklin Professor of Southern History at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, where he has taught since 1980. He is a specialist in the political, social, environmental, and civil rights history of the American South. He's the author, editor now of nine books on topics ranging from Jeff Davis to Marian Anderson to the Freedom Riders. His book on the Freedom Riders received numerous awards as did a documentary film based upon it. He's also a civic activist himself and has received recognition from numerous organizations for his work on civil liberties and human rights. Um, but his latest book, the reason he's here today, on Arthur Ashe, um, it was published 50 years pretty much the day after Arthur Ashe himself triumphed in the 1968 U.S. Open. And it's no exaggeration to say it should be required reading for every Richmonder and also for anyone interested in leadership and social change. It gives an equal measure, uh, a full and authoritative account of Ash as an athlete, as activist, and as an intellectual, while fully illuminating his historical context. In fact, I assigned the book on my Leadership Studies 101 course in the spring, and while the book was and is a little long for us to discuss every detail in class, it profoundly impacted and moved both me and my students. And I'll tell this little story that uh, Tom Tuning, who was the top white tennis player at the time when, when Arthur Ashe was coming up, um, actually came to my class and spoke about, uh, spoke with my students about his experience with Arthur Ashe. And I asked him about your book, and he had read the whole thing, and he said you did a good job, and it was accurate. So, <laughs> um, so uh, I, I thought you'd appreciate that. And, and, and in any case, I, I'm delighted that uh, Mr. Arsenault is here today at the University of Richmond. I'd like you to invite you to come forward for your lecture on Arthur Ashe, Courage and Civility.
Let's see. Can, can you hear me okay? Oh, right, right. This is such a wonderful auditorium. It's a, I was telling uh, Dan that I wanted to take this back to Florida with me. We don't have anything like this where I, where I teach. This is quite remarkable. Um, you know, it's really great to be here. I, um, I spent a lot of time in Richmond when I was researching the book over a nine-year period. Um, uh, I didn't think it was going to take me nine years when I started. I probably is a testament to how, actually how little I knew about Ash at the beginning. I thought I knew it, but uh, it was quite, a, quite an adventure for me. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I, it was probably the most difficult book that I've had to write because of the trajectory of Arthur's story. You know, I knew, of course, it was not going to have a happy ending, that like Alexander Hamilton, he was going to die at the age of 49, he never made it to 50, and that he was going to die of AIDS after a blood transfusion. And my, uh, both my parents had just died, and I was feeling, I was sort of getting older myself, feeling my own mortality, and I, about four years into the project, I thought, you know, do I really want this to dominate my life for the next five or six years? Uh, emotionally, can I handle it? Because when you do a biography like this, um, you know, you live and breathe the subject. Uh, you, you go to bed thinking about the person you're writing about, and you wake up thinking about that person. And fortunately, I had a great person in Arthur Ashe. I, for a, a number of years, I in my early career, I wrote books about southern demagogues, kind of the wild and woolly characters from the backwoods of the Deep South. And uh, uh, my, my friends used to say I was the world's only demagographer. <laughs> so many demagogues, so little time. Um, but uh, I, I always really, my first love was civil rights history, and I, I knew I would turn to that at some point, and that's what I've done over the last few books. And, that's the way I saw the Arthur Ashe project as a, to a large extent, a facet of civil rights history, that I thought he was unappreciated as a civil rights uh, figure. Actually, the origin of the book was 1972, and I was attending the uh, US Pro Tournament. I, I've always been a very mediocre tennis player, but very enthusiastic, and I love to go and watch tennis and play it every, every week. And, so I was there with a friend, uh, Jim Horton, who's an African-American. We were grad students together. We were tennis partners. Uh, he looked like Arthur Ashe's twin. They were exactly the same height and weight, six foot one, 155 pounds, same coloring. And he adored Ashe. And he kind of introduced me into the, the cult of Ashe, you might, might say. In fact, on that day in, in 1972, Ashe was about to play Tom Ocker, the great the Flying Dutchman. You know, and who later, I mean, actually before that, he had already beaten Ocker in the final of the U.S. Open in 1968. So they were in the, they were in the, uh, in the locker room. Waiting, we were waiting for them to come out to play, and, and uh, my, my sister-in-law was kind of a practical joker. Uh, she saw Jim, my friend, standing there, and she yells at him, Arthur. He looked just like Arthur. So immediately there were about 200 people just on him for autographs, and uh, I remember looking at his face, he thought, well, I'm just going to go with this. <laughs> so he, he started signing, yours truly, James Oliver Horton, you know, <laughs> and uh, about, um, 
Five minutes later, the real Arthur Ashe comes out, and the, the, the attendants were pointing to this imposter, you know, across the way. And, uh, but Arthur, it was really, really, as always, had such a good, good sense of humor and spirit about it. Uh, but I know it was Jim's, uh, the greatest moment of his life, really, that, that day when he impersonated Arthur Ashe. Um, Sadly, uh, Jim, who became a very distinguished historian in his own right, and I think he's actually lectured here in the past, he, he died three years ago of a frontal lobe condition, kind of mimics Alzheimer's. Um, and uh, we had talked about this book years ago, and uh, he, he really kind of, he, he wasn't conscious enough to know when I finished it, and so I, I dedicated it to him and his, and his wife. And, but I always think about that wonderful day back in 1972. Uh, you know, I've been lecturing about Ash all over the country in the last year or so, from Boston to Los Angeles, but not in his hometown, right? This is quite a day for me to come back, to slink back into town after writing this book, right? And uh, um, in fact, what I was thinking about flying up here this morning, it reminded me of a, it's kind of a story that uh, I was at a conference at the Smithsonian many years ago, and uh, a friend of mine who taught at Cornell, um, she, for some reason, she was made the, the um, kind of the, the uh, sort of the head of this panel on Native American history, on American Indians, and she really hadn't written anything about American Indian history, and she wasn't an American Indian, so she was a little nervous about, uh, so she started with this story about the 1889 Johnstown, Pennsylvania flood, where more than 2,000 people died or perished. And she talks about this historian who died in the flood back in 1889, and he goes up to heaven and he's checking in with St. Peter, getting all you know, officially registered, and all he wants to talk about is the flood. You know, St. Peter's just trying to get him in, and he's saying, no, I, you know, the flood was amazing, these raging rivers and all these people dying, and it was, it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. You know, I could give a lecture on the flood once I get in here, you know. And he, and he won't give it up. He wants to give the lecture on the flood. So finally, St. Peter says, okay, you can give the lecture, but I have to warn you, Noah will be in the audience, okay? <laughs> so I've discovered over the years there are often Noahs in the audience, particularly in Richmond, Virginia, about Arthur Ashe. So please be gentle, <laughs> um, so the Noahs out there. Um, I invited a couple members of Arthur's family. I don't know if they're here or not. Um, David, uh, Loretta, they may not be here yet. But anyway, they may, they may be here today, his half-sister and his, his nephew. There's a, still a large Arthur Ashe sort of clan, or Ashe family clan here in, 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 in Richmond, uh, in, in the area. And I know they were all turned out, of course, for the naming of Boulevard back in, back in June, which I think was a glorious occasion. I'm sorry, I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't be here for that. But uh, I noticed when I came in from the airport, there was the sign. So. I guess it's, it's official. Uh, you know, uh, when you do a book like this, um, particularly when it's, it's, this was the first biography of Arthur Ashe, okay, so, and that's what sort of attracted me. I thought, I've got one more book in me. I've already killed quite a few trees in my career, but I, I always had loved Ashe and respected him and admired him, and, and I thought it was quite amazing that, that here it was almost you know, 20 years after his death, in 1993, and uh, no one had written a biography. Now, he wrote four autobiographies, which is quite amazing. Think about if he'd lived longer, how many autobiographies he might have written. 
Now, the first one when he was, you know, 26 years old. Um, but uh, I, I really had the sense that, there, there, although I didn't know the whole story, that um, there, there was something there, really, that um, uh, America needed to know, or the world needed to know, that this was not just another tennis player. I knew he was a great tennis player. Um, uh, but I, what I discovered, and of course uh, many of you probably know this, he was, a, he was a greater human being. And I think he's really one of the great Americans of the 20th century. And I think he's, more and more he's appreciated in, in that vein, that he's, he transcends the world of sports, transcends the world of, of, of tennis. Uh, very likely the most famous person ever born in Richmond, Virginia. It really is, many people, of course, know he's from here, and of course they also know, many of them, about the troubles he had growing up here and the difficulties in the Jim Crow era and uh, why he had to leave Richmond for a while. He didn't finish high school here, he finished in, in St. Louis, Missouri, which I often think about now in the, in the Black Lives Matter era today and knowing about Ferguson, Missouri, he left Richmond to look for a more liberal city. And he moved to St. Louis, okay? So, may say something about the nature of, of race in Richmond in, in, the, in the 1950s, 60s. Um, but I was saying, I, you know, the, about halfway through the project, I, I thought, I don't know if I can finish this book. The, the trajectory started to bother me. I thought, I, I don't know if I can take it emotionally. I started to identify with him in a way that... Uh, um, I couldn't get over it, really, and so I walked away from it for about 10 months. And uh, fortunately, my agent and the editors were all very understanding, and they said, well, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And, and frankly, I think it was Arthur himself who brought me back. I really thought, you know, going through all the trials and tribulations that he faced, the incredible courage that, that he displayed, I thought, you know, if he could do that, I can certainly finish this book. You know, that, that the challenges I'm facing are nothing compared to the ones that he faced throughout his life. So, so I trudged on, and it got bigger and bigger. Uh, you'll see when you, if you buy a copy or if you've seen it before, what I'm signing. It's a very big book. I actually cut almost 300 pages out of it. Okay. In fact, later this year in the Marshall series, you'll have David Blight, who's a good friend of mine who's the great biographer of... Uh, Frederick Douglass, who won the Pulitzer Prize this year. Um, and David and I, uh, we have the same editor, the same agent, we have all friends. Um, he, we got our, our manuscripts in the same day to Simon & Schuster, both of them over 1,200 pages. And uh, after our editor got out of the hospital from the shock, <laughs> he, he told us you gotta cut it down a little bit. Okay. But um, Arthur, um, the depth of his character, I think it's, uh, I've been very fortunate in my life. Uh, I, I spent many years writing a book on the Freedom Riders and I got very close to Congressman John Lewis and many of the Freedom Riders and I don't know that I've ever met people quite like that. And, and I think Arthur, although I never met him, I saw him play, uh, I feel like I, I, I know him and uh, certainly, and uh, it's just a privilege to get a sense of, of someone who is so committed to doing the right thing, to civility, but civility with courage. You know, I mean, he, I think sometimes he was misinterpreted as someone who was uh, 
not really engaged because he was so cool and collected on the outside. You know, he, he never raised his voice, he never seemed to get angry, he never seemed to hold a grudge. It's almost too good to be true. And I worried about that when I started the book, that maybe he was too flat. You know, he, he, needed, a, he needed a critical edge, you know, kind of creative tension that would make him an interesting character. And I think what I discovered about him was that underneath that cool exterior, and they used to call him Mr. Cool, that was one of the nicknames, was a raging kind of uh, feeling of inadequacy in terms of the standards that he had set for himself. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that, like many young athletes, he was a bit self-absorbed. He had to be, you know, to go up the tennis ladder, particularly being the first African-American on the male tour. He was trying to do something that no one had ever done before. I mean, Althea Gibson had sort of broken the ice a bit um, in the women's tour earlier, but he was the first, and in his entire career, he was alone. Think about that. I mean, he, we often say he's the Jackie Robinson of men's tennis, but he was a Jackie Robinson with no Willie Mays, no Hank Aaron, no Ernie Banks, no, no Don Newcomb. He was alone. And I think that, that, that created certain burdens, but the biggest burden on him, I think, was that he, he was doing this against the backdrop of the Civil Rights Movement, and yet he could not participate in it in the early years. He had a very uh, strong disciplinarian father, whom he came to love, but I think he was scared of when he was a, a, young, a young man. And uh, his father told him early on, don't get involved in that civil rights mess. That's the way he put it. And uh, of course, his, his teacher, Dr. Robert Johnson, who had been Althea Gibson's mentor before, who had the great uh, black kind of tennis camp in the summers up in Lynchburg and trained many of the great stars. Uh, he, he was so afraid that there would be a racial incident when they were trying to desegregate tennis in the 1950s. So he told them, you know, you, uh, if the white boy hits the ball just out and he's playing against you, you call it in. You call it in. It's more important not to have an incident, not to have the argument. Think about the people who are going to come after you. You know, you're sort of preparing